I can't believe we're on to episode number 10 of the Development by David podcast and what an episode it is and that's because it's with Rory McGuire. Rory is a social change and equality campaigner and works with a wonderful charity called Changing Faces. Rory was born with a facial birthmark. He actually described himself as an owner of a facial birthmark because he well and truly owns it and today's podcast ties in nicely with the mental health calendar event Time to Talk Day because for Rory, talking changed his life. I hope it raises the awareness of the importance of talking and it encourages you to talk too. As always, Rory and I's DMs are always open for a chat. So shoot me a message. Even provide me with some feedback on this podcast. If it gets a chat going, I'd love it. Speak with you all soon. Hope you enjoy the listening. It is an honour. A real honour to welcome Rory McGuire to the podcast today. How's your Saturday, buddy? Yeah, not bad at all. How's yours going, David? Good now that I'm speaking with you, mate. I'm so excited for this <laughs> after hearing the snapshot of your story. We're recording this late in January, and I really want to get this episode out for one of the key events in the mental health calendar, which is Time to Talk Day. Besides hearing your powerful Genesis story, I also want to use this podcast to highlight you as a case study for championing the importance of talking. You said in your BBC The Social documentary that talking changed your life. So I want to promote this as an ideology for more people to repurpose and I want you to highlight that. Do you think we can achieve that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, For me personally, I used to bottle everything up when I was younger and I was going through a really hard time in my in my head. And um, it's only when I started to open up and talk about my experiences, that's when I really felt the pressure was off and the weight was lifted and I, I completely changed my life around. And I, I do credit talking about my experiences as being a major factor in that. I love it, mate. I really do. I'm so grateful that I know you, but I'm aware that the listeners don't. Um, you know that I take it back to day one with guests on this podcast. And I know all the interviews you do, you're so used to taking it back to day one. But Rory, I know your transformation is physically and mentally. So what do you see when you look in the mirror today in 2021? When I look in the mirror, um, I've always seen the good traits that I have, but I used to really fixate on my facial birthmark and... It would always be a case I would think to myself, oh, well, I can see the good traits, but no one else can. All they see is the birthmark. That's all that they focus on. I was probably wrong to think that, but it's just the way that I felt at the time about my my self-identity, I suppose. Um, But now when I look in the mirror and I see my birthmark, it reminds me of the journey that I've been on to get where I am today. And it sort of keeps me humble. Um, I can never stray too far away from my past experiences because I've always got this reminder on my face of where I've been. That's so powerful, mate. And me and your other friends will see all the good traits that you have. I wish I was as tall as you, as tall as you to begin with. <laughs> but uh, as a foreshadow, mate, I want to use this podcast uh, as a tool for me to use the art of shutting the fuck up, essentially. Your story is incredible and it needs to be heard itself on repeat, on repeat, on repeat. And the message that you present me is much wider than the individual rare story that is yours. I think anyone, literally anyone can pull and repurpose today's message because we are all categorically different and unique. 
So let's take it back to day one, mate. Tell me your story. When did you first know you were quote unquote different? Right, back to day one. Um, so I'm Rory, I recently turned 27 and I was born with a birthmark on my face, which is called a venous malformation. And basically all that is, is a gathering of extra veins confined to a particular part of the body. Uh, mine's on my upper lip and right cheek. And it wasn't actually apparent um, at birth. It, it only became apparent, I think, maybe when I was around about a year old. My parents started to notice that my my upper lip was um, noticeably larger than the bottom lip. Went to the doctors, got diagnosed as a venous malformation. And the nature of the birthmark is it grows with you until you stop growing. Um, so as I got older, it grew bigger and bigger. Um, and as I've told you before, when we went on a walk together, I had it fully removed when I was four uh, through an operation, but it actually grew back and I couldn't have any further surgery on it until I was a lot older um, because it was still growing. But the, the first time that I really noticed that I was different was um, first day of primary one. Um, my, my dad and my grand took me in and I just, I, I can... I can remember this quite clearly, uh, going into the classroom, meeting all my new classmates for the first time, the people that I was going to grow through primary school with. And I remember a few of the other children sort of being um, being very focused on me and, you know, tapping their parents and pointing at me and, and saying things to their parents. And I saw a couple of the parents sort of trying to turn, turn their head away from me to stop looking at me and then going over and having a little word with them. I suppose, obviously, I was only four and a half years old at the time, um, so I wasn't mentally prepared to fully compute that in my head, but I, I remember that that is the first time that I noticed that there must be something about me that that is different. Um, that was the first time I, reckon, uh, I recognised that there was a difference. And how did that stay with you, that, 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 that first realization of feeling different how did that stay with you throughout school well um it became very difficult to deal with because i at the time i hated being the center of attention and for many years and even still because i still look a little bit different it's just something that i've accepted i'm always going to be um a little bit different to the norm in terms of how i look but at one point in time, I really couldn't deal with it. And going through school, um, you know, whatever room I went into or if people hadn't seen me for the first time, it's not something you see very often as someone with a birthmark on their face. And I was, or I am the person that a lot of people know, um, know me for having a birthmark on my face. And as I got older through school, primary school, was generally okay, um, but I know there are certain things in primary school that were sort of the foundation for the way that I ended up feeling in my late teens um, mm. in terms of looking different and people whispering behind my back and me walking past them and, you know, I'm, I'm just beyond, you know, I'm a few metres away from them, but I'm still within earshot and I've heard them say something nasty about me or... I've heard them, oh, I wonder what happened to him. And, you know, all these little incidents that were happening on a regular basis all built up into me really thinking, 
you know, I'm I'm different. People are always going to look down on me. People are always going to prejudge me. And, you know, that just manifested itself into pretty full-blown depression by the time I was about 17. Wow. So at the age of 17, how did, how were you? Was this the lowest of your lows? Did the microaggressions that were faced towards you have a snowball effect at this point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, all these little little incidents, as I said, people, you know, pointing out my difference and making it apparent that I do have a difference. I, I mean, I was constantly looking for it. Wherever I went, I, I was always in the corner of my eye looking for someone staring at me, expecting someone to say something, expecting someone to stare at me. And uh, by the time I was 17, I'd actually accepted the fact that because um, at that time I'd started going for operations again like when I was 17 that was the first time I'd started going for operations since I was four how many, uh, because I had, how many operations have you had Rory? I've actually lost count but I know it's round about somewhere around about 20 wow. operations and uh, I mean one was when I was four and then the rest were between the age of 17 and 22 so there was a five-year period there where I, I had a, a load of operations uh, with a general anaesthetic every time. And by the time I was 17, I was going to be going into the first operation that I'd had since I was four. And I had pretty much, no matter how much I loved my family and my friends and all the rest of it, I'd pretty much accepted in my own head that if something were to go devastatingly wrong with the operation and for example I was to die as a result of having an anaesthetic or what have you which is rare but I know it can happen and um, I'd pretty much accepted that that wouldn't be the worst outcome because then I wouldn't have to go through not only the prejudice but the battles within my own head which were probably worse than the prejudice um, mm. because of the way that I doubted myself and I doubted my future I didn't think I was ever going to be happy didn't think I was ever going to be confident. I didn't think I was ever going to be able to walk down the street or get on public transport without being consumed with anxiety because I, I really, I mean, like, as I've told you before, a dentist's waiting room or the doctor's waiting room, for example, that was like the worst thing that I could imagine. Um, I was just consumed with anxiety as soon as, as soon as I walked into a situation like that. I'm so injected with perspective right now, Rory. Uh, and it's not even the first time I've heard that story about the, the, the battles that you faced in your head of tying your self-worth to the looks that you're given on the street and doubting your entire future and uh, uh, your your job outcomes and your yeah. perhaps maybe relationship outcomes and friendship outcomes because of yeah. the battles that are going on in your head. So that's, that's, that's how it internally looked in your head how did that reflect yeah. in your actions did you go out much no not at all um there's a period between between the ages of 17 and 23 i would say um i was pretty much a recluse um i was unemployed for about a year at one point because of the operations i was going through i was then un unemployed for another nine months because i was having so many operations at such a quick rate that <clears throat> I would have an operation and there was a two to three week period of recovery at home. You know, it was hard to get a job with all that going on. And I knew that it would be a lot to ask of an employer to, to willingly, you know, 
tell them that I've got these operations, I'm going to be off for three weeks at a time. Not only that, I didn't even have the confidence to go to a job interview. And the interviews that I did go to at the time, again, I was just consumed with anxiety. And I didn't go out much at all. Um, I play golf, so I would go out and play golf. But apart from that, I would stay in the house. And, you know, when, when I got to the age of 18 and my friends started going out and I was hearing about all their stories at the weekend and stuff, there's nothing that I wanted to do more than join them and go and have fun with them. But I couldn't bring myself to do it because the way I felt at the time, I knew that if I walked into a club or a restaurant or a pub or a bar, it was just going to be all eyes on me and I really couldn't deal with it at the time. So even though most of my friends I've been friends with since I was really young and I've made a lot of new friends in the past few years, but the ones that have known me since I was really young, there is a four or five year period where I don't have many memories with them because I wasn't going out with them and having fun. And um, I know that that could have affected friendships because, you know, they'd be used to, to seeing other people and, and not used to seeing me. And luckily, I'm still great friends with everyone I was friends with back then. And we've made new memories since then. And we've made up for lost time, I suppose you could put it. Uh, but, you know, it still sticks with me that there was four or five years where I just didn't leave the house and it's tough. But again, going back to what I said earlier, it's good for me to reflect on the dark periods like that because it shows how far I've come now. I'm reflecting on it now, Rory. I remember you told me that you spent your 21st birthday, the big pivotal birthday that even in America is like the the gateway to freedom, the gateway to adulthood. You spent, mm. You told me you spent that in your house upset and crying and you told me just a couple minutes ago that you couldn't go into nightclubs because you didn't want to be the centre of attention you didn't want to be known as the different guy in the room Hmm. but now you're this confident ecstatic individual and you embrace being different or quote-unquote different like that's Mm -hmm. that's what separates you from everyone else but you use you you say that you're the owner of a facial birthmark but Uh you really are right now the owner you own that thing (laughs) <laughs> you, it's amazing mate I'm so so proud of you and so so proud of that story I'm actually getting a bit emotional uh, thanks David and my gut like actually just you, like I've heard it two or three times now and boy has it moved me again for like the, the third time of hearing it so I mean, I'm just so proud of you honestly and I've only known you such a short period of time but just uh, one of my goals for 2021 is to become more empathetic because I suppress my emotions and the reason right. the way I wanted to to cure that was by hearing perspective of stories or struggles that I've not had to face myself and mate. This is this is the biggest one yet, so thank you. <laughs> no problem at all. Um to touch on what you said about my twenty first birthday, that was I mean, I still remember it. Um I got up in the morning and my mum and dad were my mum and dad were really happy that day. They were, you know, their son was turning twenty one, it was a big day. They presented me with this beautiful watch that uh, that I actually lost last year when I was drunk. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, <laughs> we were making it for story. lost time. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, they presented me with this watch, and uh, I was I was so depressed, and I sat down on the sofa, and I, I got presented with this watch, and they were really happy, and they could see that something was wrong because I just wasn't reciprocating the energy they were giving me, basically, and. Um, I sat for an hour and a half on the couch crying, an hour and a half, um, 
because it felt to me that I'd reached the age of 21, which is seen, as you say, it's like a pivotal moment, it's a milestone. And I was still going through all the feelings that I'd faced since I was five years old and probably in a much bigger way because the more time went on with me feeling that way, the more I couldn't see uh, light at the end of the tunnel. And I always kept a glimmer of hope and it's a little glimmer of hope that I always kept in the back of my head. You just need to keep going, be patient because you know it is going to come to fruition uh, that you're going to get through this. But when I was 21, I'd been going through it for that long. I, I was just fed up and you know I was 21, wasn't going out to nightclubs, wasn't uh, seeing my friends that much was very depressed, didn't know what was going to happen in the future, didn't know if I was ever going to be happy or confident. And, you know, on a, a birthday that's an, as important as your 21st, it was, it was a really heartbreaking day for me. Um, but again, an important day in my story to show how far that I've come. It really is, mate. I think that is the lowest of your lows, by the sounds of things. How did you overcome it? Um... Well, one of the, there's two main things, right? Um, one of them absolutely is the way that I started to open up about my experiences. And I've told you before, when I was 22, I put a post on Facebook and I can't even fully remember the motivation behind doing that, but it was something along the lines of me thinking to myself, enough's enough. If I speak about my experiences, then maybe not only will it be cathartic for me, but my experiences might be able to help someone else. So I put this post on Facebook and it had like a, a collage of me throughout the years and how my face had changed and what the birthmark looks like now or at the time. And I wrote a lot of things about my experiences. I wrote about, um, you know, sometimes children would be scared of my appearance when they saw me and how that made me feel, uh, how that made me feel. And, you know, just the confidence issues, the body confidence issues. And it got shared worldwide. Uh, people started messaging me saying I was very brave and courageous to say those things and that my words had inspired and helped them. I said a lot of things that not even my mum and dad knew. And I said a lot of things my friends didn't know. And uh, it felt really good to get it off my chest. And that's been, that's been the biggest factor in changing my life around, definitely, is uh, starting to speak about things. The other thing is getting the majority of my birthmark removed. That, you know, that along, along with speaking about my experiences has helped me massively. But the funny thing is, now that I look back on it, um, and I think that I could have reached the point I'm at now without having any surgery at all. Um, I have had the surgery, but I do think that I could have reached this point without having it. And I've been offered further surgery to make my face completely symmetrical. And I've had surgeons saying to me before, look, we can quote unquote finish the job and no one will ever know you've had a birthmark, all the rest of it. I've turned it down um, because I'm happy the way that I am. And in a really, in a really big turn of events, I like the fact that I've got a birthmark on my face. And if you'd asked me three or four years ago, that would be the furthest thing from the, you know, that, that would have been the furthest thing that I could ever believe about myself that I would say something like that. But now, as you say, I own it and uh, I'm happy that I've got it. And I know that 
no matter how hard the experiences were that I went through and how much I missed out on as a teenager and a man in his early 20s, uh, I'm glad that I went through it at the time because I might have been someone completely different if I hadn't. Um, and I think it's given me sort of power to, to help other people. You're the absolute paragon of bravery and courageous. And after hearing that mic dropping moment, my brain's <laughs> playing thought pinball of what to ask you next because there's just so so much warmth and so much um, authenticity there that I just want to get it all out there at once. But I guess what I want to ask is, we speak about this big surgery that you had in 2016, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was where that was the most pivotal surgery that you had to move the large extent of the tissue. Mm-hmm. You said when we went this walk that you said what you just said there that you you think you could have reached that point of confidence without having that surgery, but in your mind at that moment in time that was a tick box. That was like the the gateway for your happiness. You thought in your own head. You thought I yeah. Can- that's a good way to put it. Gateway to happiness. That is. For many years, the only thing I wanted was that surgery that I had in 2016. That was what I was waiting on since I was four or five years old until the age of 22. I'd been waiting years and years and years for that surgery to be possible, and then it was possible. But the fact is that, like like you said, you could have been confident without it, but there was a mental block in your head that said, uh-huh. I have to get that no matter what. That was your North Star, not a career, mm-hmm. not anything else. It was just that one surgery, wasn't it? That, yeah. was your, that was your glimmer of hope. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that, when I talk about the glimmer of hope, I'm talking about that surgery, basically. Um, and it's it's something that I'd wanted done. Something that I've said before, it's maybe not fully, you'll be, maybe be able to take something from this, but basically my dream at the time was something that the majority of people are born with. You know, like, what my dream was, was to be able to walk down the street and not feel anxious, be able to go places without feeling any sort of way towards my identity. And, you know, most people are born with that. Most people, obviously, there's a lot of people that, that don't have those uh, certain traits, but most people are born into a situation where they're not having to be singled out the way that I was, I suppose, and it was it was my dream to be able to go down the street and not have anyone look at me. And when I put it that way in my own head, it's quite powerful to myself because it's, you know, like imagine your dream is something that everyone else is born into. And that's the way that I felt at the time. Mate, that is so moving. I'm so glad we realised that together and that you realised that. I remember you told me that there was a TV programme that wanted your involvement. Uh, uh-huh. and I think what you just said there was thematic through your choice to go on to that TV programme that n- never went to air can you speak about that? Yeah so it was a prime time uh, television show a couple of years ago that the, the producer wanted me for it I went through all sort. I went through basically an audition and then all sorts of forms and stuff like that it was going to be prime time on a big channel with a very well known presenter and um, the premise of the show was that <clears throat> people who want to have some sort of appearance-based surgery, whether it be implants or facelift or what have you, they would come and basically present their case to a panel 
and they wanted me on the panel um, as one of the sort of judges, I suppose you would say. And they would present their case to the panel and then the panel had to decide whether or not uh, they should have the surgery. And if the majority said yes, the TV channel was then going to, <coughs> sorry, the TV channel was then going to pay for the surgery. Now, the, the premise of that to me, it's not a great concept. Um, I don't really agree with the concept at all, but the reason I, I was interested in it was because I knew it was a big platform where I could voice my own experiences and there'd be people watching at home or indeed the contestants on the show might be able to listen to what I've been through in terms of surgery and conference issues and stuff like that. And they might say to themselves, you know what, I don't need surgery. You know, he's helped me to realise that I don't need to change my appearance. I look fine the way that I am. And that's the reason I wanted to be involved in the show. Um, and as you say, it never went to air. Um, but there's, you know, there's a couple of things that it's not necessarily the best fit for me, but I know that my experiences will hold more weight than what the premise is, if you know what I mean. I and that's, uh, that's what got me interested in that one. I love that. And essentially what you spoke about before, about your North Star, your, your dream being just to look normal, to fit in, to look like the same as everyone else. If you mm. took that message to that panel where people were going into, into the jury or into the, the fake court to, uh, mm. to display their case for cosmetic surgery, I think if you, they heard that message of you just wanting to fit in, where when these people who are on that programme, the contestants as such, already fit in, I think, I think that message would have landed so well despite of the kind of backlash of the premise of the pro program itself so yeah. we're speaking about tv here. exactly mate we're speaking about tv here right uh -huh. you, you, you almost made it to air on this tv program you've been on tv on, on numerous occasions but that is almost 17 year old rory's worst nightmare when was your first interview and what was it for and how did you feel afterwards uh first interview was stv live at five um that was actually before i'd had the majority of my birthmark removed, but it was about a month after the initial Facebook post that I just told you about. Mm -hmm. And after that initial Facebook post, um, I really wasn't in a good place at all when I posted that. And then within a month of me posting that, um, my face was all over multiple national newspapers and then this TV programme wanted to interview me. And um, before I went in, I was... Yeah, it was 17-year-old Rory's worst nightmare, but there I was in the green room or what have you, and I was I couldn't stop walking. I was pacing up and down. My heart <laughs> was going like a train. Um, but funnily enough, as soon as the cameras were on me and I started to speak about my experiences, I mean, that's that first television interview that I did, when I watched that back, that is the first time that I ever displayed the same sort of confidence that I've I've got mo even more confidence now, but that was the first time that I'd ever really been proud of the way that I handled my situation because the confidence I displayed uh, without any anxiousness on display or whatever was uh, it was inspiring even for myself, and it, it, it's something that's an interview that I watch now and again maybe when I'm reflecting on the past and stuff and I'll. I'll look at that and I'll think, you know, good on you. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, so we spoke about that pivotal, pivotal Facebook post. And 
the facial birthmark was almost taboo before then. Do you think it was the elephant in the room and the fact that you addressed that became a catalyst for further campaigning and further advocacy? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, as I said before that initial Facebook post, which is only about five years ago, um, before that, I didn't talk about my birthmark at all. I really, because I didn't want it to be the centre of attention, I sort of tried to talk about it as little as possible. And whenever anyone brought it up, like my, my heart would start to race immediately because I really did not want to talk about that subject at all. Uh, because I bottled everything up at the time and uh, as you say it was like the elephant in the room so there's obviously people have asked about it countless times over the years but whenever someone did ask about it at that age I hated it and I was uh, I automatically got butterflies every time whenever anyone said you know what's what's wrong with your face is one of the main questions that I've had um, over the years it's probably the main question that I've had over the years what's wrong with your face and I would get butterflies every time straight away. Uh, and now when people ask about it, I'm happy to talk about it. And my, my life is that when I talk about my younger life, everything that I felt then is the opposite now. It's a complete 180 degree turn uh, is what my life has done. And I'd rather talk about it now than bottle it up. And I'd rather it was out in the open than bottle it up. And Again, for 17-year-old Rory to think that way is mind-blowing because I would never have thought that way at that age. And now I very much do and I'm in a much better place now. Mate, I'm so proud of you. And the synchronicity of this podcast and the mental health calendar event, Time to Talk, is absolutely paralleled. For you, that was really time for you to talk. You needed to talk at that moment in time. Yeah, I think I did. Um, I don't know what happened in my head at that point that I decided to start talking about it, but I really, I noticed that I was going down a dark path. Not that I was doing drugs or anything like that, but I noticed that in my own head, I was just getting lower and lower and lower. And I just, I couldn't see an, an end goal in sight, basically. And it was as if the, the only thing I could do at the time was tell my story and hope that it helped. And if it didn't help, then I, I might have still been kept in that cycle for a bit longer, but it helped way beyond how I thought it would have helped. Um, and that really spurred me on to continue telling my story. I really hope that gives the listeners a fresh perspective on the importance of talking. Um, and I hope, I hope people who are struggling that are listening to this and are bottling things up do feel the need to feel the the energy that comes from Rory's story to to go on and talk whether it's within their friend group or their family or yeah. much wider like Rory has so you've been you've been on that journey of posting that very first initial Facebook for it to go viral to then go on to your first TV TV uh, appearance what was after that what other, other appearances have you done um I've done quite a few um television I've done Sky News BBC Channel 5 a few times, uh, STV. I just uh, any network you can think of in Britain, basically. <laughs> uh, I've done a, a chat show on Sky. I got interviewed for a chat show on Sky. Um, uh, yeah, I've done quite a lot of different things. And, you know, for, for me to think that I would ever be doing that, again, is absolutely mind-blowing. But 
I enjoy it now. I really enjoy it. And I've actually said before, which is another mental thing for me to say, like just another mind-blowing thing, is that there, there's probably no situation that I'm more confident in than when someone's interviewing me on television. Like I've, just, <laughs> I've noticed myself that when I'm on television being interviewed, I thrive off it. I absolutely buzz off it and I love it. And it's, you know, for... You know, there, there's hardly any photographs exist of me as a teenager because I used to not want my photograph taken under any circumstances. I didn't even used to go to a lot of family events in public places because I knew that photographs were going to be taken. You know, I would stay in the house and my mum and dad might go along and they would they would try and entice me to go, but there's a lot of family things I missed out on because I just didn't have the confidence to be in those public places. And the fact that for someone that used to be in used to hate being photographed so deeply, uh, deeply hated it. Uh, for me to think that there's no situation I'm more confident in than being in front of a camera, in front of potentially millions on some of these shows, you know, that's, again, it shows me how far that I've come. And uh, I always remain humble because I always remember where I've been. Um, I mean, I've been through a lot of traumatic stuff. It's never going to... Uh, it will never be taken away from me. Like, I, I can't forget what happened, but it's still very much in the back of my head a lot of the time. But it makes me more proud of myself uh, that I've been able to get to this point. Rory, one of my favourite uh, online features of you are your, is it your speech at the No to Hate Cream Awards in 2018. Oh, yeah. I, I, I love that video. You looked uh, very handsome in your, your kilt. That's right. <laughs> uh, you welled up when you gave that speech, mate. You were really, yeah. really emotional. Why did yeah. that mean so much to you? I was very emotional that night. Um, the No to Hate Crime Awards that year, I, I won an award called the Young Upstander of the Year. And that was because I, I was the face of a hate crime campaign, a charity called Changing Faces that I'm, I'm a champion for. Uh, they ran a hate crime campaign that year, which I was one of the main faces of. And off the back of that, there's a lot of other stuff that I did that year. Then I got put forward for this award and I won. Um, and there was about 300, 350 people in the room um, down in central London. And for me, it just felt like I had been struggling for my whole life up to that point, dealing with all sorts of different negative emotions, you know, stuff that I would never want anyone to have to deal with uh, really, really, really negative uh, feelings and emotions in my head. And I'd got through the other side of it. I'd had this surgery, all the rest of it. And then I started to really speak about my experiences on a sort of a bigger platforms. And uh, for me to be commended for what I went through for all those years and then be given an award to to show that people cared about what I had to say and to show that people didn't just see me as a guy with the birthmark on his face, they saw me as a guy with an inspirational story. Um, that meant the world to me. And I, I did, I, I absolutely broke down on stage. Uh, and yes, it, it was it just, it felt like I'd been fighting for so many years without any sort of commendation from anyone. That's just the way that I felt. And, I'm sure there's lots of people looked at me over the years and thought, you know, he's a really brave guy to to go about with that birthmark or what have you. But they've not they maybe didn't say that to me. So it was still in my head that 
uh, I hadn't really been commended for it. And then to have this uh, award given to me on the big stage and all the rest of it, just it felt like a victory after fighting a battle for many years. Wow. Wow. Oh, mate. To deconstruct that, it's just fucking crazy, mate. Like, you're on stage for a starter, which was, like we said, 17-year-old Rory's worst fucking nightmare. You're on a fucking stage in front of three people. Swing your face. Accept an award for campaigns that included you showing your face and the story that came with it. Mm-hmm. That sentence itself is a transformation. I, I'm just so proud. Yeah. Of you. I, I hope you do reflect on it. Thank you. Yeah, I do. I do. It's, it's as I say, it's always in the back of my head uh, where I've been in the in the past uh, because it, it's my story. You know, my social development was actually held back because you know, you, you, age of seventeen to twenty-two, that's a very important part of your life, and for me. I wasn't doing the things that seventeen to twenty-two year olds normally do. I wasn't going out, and I wasn't, I wasn't really socialising. I was spending a lot of time on my own in my bedroom, and you know that's that'll affect anyone, especially at that age. Well, we learn in classrooms and in the workplace by osmosis by just watching other people do things, and even social skills fall into that bucket. You would probably yeah. have lost out in social skills how to interact with. Uh, potential partners and how to interact with new friends, how to be introduced to new groups, how to interact with people in public because you don't yeah, have I used, to, I used to hate meeting new people like meeting new people was one of the worst things that I could think of and again, you know everything that I felt back then, I feel the opposite now, I love meeting new people now <laughs> and I'm very outgoing and you know, I socialise a lot under normal circumstances obviously but yeah, it's a complete 180 degree turn that I've done. And I want to show people that no matter how low you're feeling at the moment, I've, I've been able to do a complete 180 and so can you. I love that, mate. We spoke about your No to Hate Crime awards being a victory in the sense that you weren't just known as Rory with the birthmark. You were, you were known as Rory the Advocate. I know the answer yeah. to this next question, right? Do you think you subconsciously only do the campaigning to be known and recognised as more than Rory with the facial birthmark, you don't, you don't want to be known as completely that, and that's all you're worth. Or do you campaign and advocate because you truly, truly stand for the cause? I think the latter. Yeah, definitely latter. Um, I've I've read stories about children in the past. Uh, you know, like these online stories you see and, and stuff like that about children that are going through similar situations to what I went through. Um, I remember reading one on a train when I, I lived in Kent for over a year and I remember reading one on a train one day about like a, an 11-year-old boy that was getting bullied at school because of the way that he looked and I started crying on the train reading it because it reminded me so much of how I felt at that age. Um and one of the main reasons that I do all this campaign sort of work is I don't want anyone to have to experience the things that I did at that age. Uh, I'm getting emotional talking about that. But yeah, that's that's a huge thing for me because what I went through right at the start of my life, nobody should have to. You know, I, I was born into a situation where I was the underdog. In every situation, I was the different one. I was the one that was having to fight, and not physically fight, but I was having to 
not only fight off people's prejudices on me, but fight with all the stuff that was going on in my head. My head was all jumbled up. And, you know, for me to think that there's children going through that right now and people that are going to grow up and maybe not get through it the way that I did, that's the biggest thing for me is not only to help children that might be experiencing it, but adults as well, because there's adults older than me that are still going through the feelings that the 17-year-old me went through. And it's stuff that nobody should ever have to, you know, where nobody gets to choose what they're going to look like when they're born. And I say this all the time, nobody should have to, you know, be prejudiced because of how they look or what their race or sexuality is or any other reason, you know, prejudice shouldn't be a thing. Rory, I'm almost angry at myself that I don't have a bigger, big enough platform to share that message. I want so many people to hear that. I just wish I had a bigger following or whatever so people could hear because that's so important and that's it's, it's really humbling me just to hear that because I, I can completely resonate that there is definitely people out there going through what 17 year old Rory went through but they're in their 40s yeah. or 50s and we spoke about when we went on a walk that you're almost valued as the underdog off the bat um, and social circumstances your, your, your self-worth you thought was tied to how you looked you always had the undercard, mm-hmm. even amongst your friends. That's just, that's just Rory with a birthmark, and even yeah. that moved me. I remember hearing that, and I was just like, "Oh, imagine having to actually to think like that." Mm-hmm. Do you think it was important for you to go through what you've been through, so you didn't become the person that would be prejudiced towards someone like you? <laughs> it's a, a very well-worded question. Um, yeah, I have thought about that before. I've, I've thought that. You know, if I, if I didn't have the birthmark, if I was completely symmetrical, if you like, uh, I could have been a completely different person. Um, this, the experiences I've gone through definitely have made me more empathetic and understanding of other people's situations. That's without doubt. Um, I'm very empathetic and understanding towards other people's situations. And I think that when people talk to me about their own situations, they can see how understanding I am because I don't I don't throw judgment at anyone else because I know what it's like to be judged. Um, so the last thing that I want is to, you know, have anyone think that I'm prejudicing them because it's just something that I would never do. Whereas if I hadn't gone through the experiences of being on the receiving end of that, I might have been a completely different person and I actually think that I'm probably after having gone through those issues than I could have been. I agree, mate. I really do. Because one one thing is that I I can, the way I felt when I was younger, I can only be humble. I didn't have any sort of reason to be cocky or arrogant or overconfident or anything like that. And I tried to remain as humble as possible because I know what I've been through. And I genuinely think that I could be nothing other than humble in most in most situations because of what I went through. So the humility that I've gained from it has been a big thing for me as well. It's such a great trait, but at times at times you need to feel like the man though. There is circumstances <laughs> where you need to step up. Do you know what I mean though? Like sometimes you need yeah, to yeah. have that injection of confidence, maybe before an interview or before a first date. Or something. Well, I've got I've got the confidence, but I try and keep the humility as well okay. as much as possible. <laughs> so, so we spoke about the surgery in 2016, and we spoke about that you were given opportunities to uh, finish the job, quote unquote. Hmm. But you, you you've refused them because 
like we said, you fucking own having a facial birthmark. Do you think a lot of your identity is tied to tied to it? See, when you had the surgery in 2016, did you ever feel like you lost part of yourself? No, not at all. Um, and I remember when I was about 16 and I was going to be going for my, my first operation since I was four was when I was 17. But I remember when I was 16, it first started to sort of get mooted. And uh, one of my best friends, Craig, shout out to Craig, uh, <laughs> Craig McKinley, he, uh, he said to me, he probably won't remember this, but I remember it, but I started talking about the fact that I was going to be getting surgery done and stuff like that. And he said to, said to me, uh, but if you lose your birthmark, you won't be Rory anymore. And that I remember thinking about that at the time. Um, obviously, I was a lot younger and, and, and more immature and stuff, but it sort of resonated with me and thought, yeah, you know, my friends don't judge me. They, they see me as Rory, you know. I'm just Rory that happens to have a birthmark. I'm not Rory with the birthmark, you know what I mean? But... Um, no, I've never personally felt like I've lost part of my identity, but when he said that, it sort of made me think about it at the time. Um, but no, it's, it's it's something that, you know, even if I did have it fully removed, I would always remember what I've uh, been through. Um, the other thing that I've not, I've not mentioned this to you, and my friends probably don't know this either, there is a chance that my birthmark could recur. There's a chance that it could start to grow bigger again. Um, luckily, that's not happened. And I, I think it would have started to have done that by now if it was going to. But as a chance with the type of birthmark that I have that it could sort of start to go back the way it was sort of thing. And over the past few years, I've felt really conflicted about that because on one hand, I know that I'm... If that were to happen, I'm probably a lot better equipped now to deal with it than I was back then. But on the other hand, if that were to happen, it would also feel in a way that I had been teased with like a few years of experience in my dream and then having my dream taken away from me and having to go back to the way that I looked before and potentially dealing with uh, what could be even worse feelings than I did back then. Because back then, I didn't have any sort of experience of walking down the street and not feeling anxious or happily going out to nightclubs and stuff the way that I do now. I didn't have that experience to miss. But if it were to recur and I wasn't, if I was to have confidence issues again where I couldn't bring myself to do those things again, I might even deal with it worse than I did back then. And it's something that I've had to think about over the years. And I've never really said that to anyone. That's a huge confliction, uh, because at that time when you were in your early teens, you didn't know what you didn't know. Yeah. And excuse me if I'm being completely juvenile and completely unsympathetic here, but I think if that were to occur, it is all a mindset. It can be yeah, combated with yeah. a mindset. Do you th- do, would you agree yeah. on that, or do you think that's unsympathetic? No, no, I would agree with that. No, knowing what I know now, I would definitely agree with that. Um, touch wood, that doesn't happen. Um, but, yeah, if it, as I say, I might be better equipped to deal with, if, deal with it if it was to happen. But, you know, part of me thinks, you know, it would be like having your dream taken away from you, you know what I mean? If that makes sense, what I'm saying. Um, well, I, I, I had that. I had my dream take away from me. My North Star was that I was going to create a lot of wealth and rid my mum of any financial stress 
my mum passed away and that North Star was taken away from me overnight. I could not achieve that. How much, no matter how successful I became, I couldn't provide my mum with that. And I know how that feels. That is the worst feeling in the world. That was just as hard as losing my mum itself. Right. And so, mate, if it does happen, it happens. But I think you're, you've got the mental tool set, tool set and the mental resilience to overcome at this time. And, mate, you've got me and you've got all your friends. So, yeah, we'll, yeah we'll, exactly. We'll um, that happen. So, so, hopefully, as I say, hopefully it doesn't recur. Um, I don't think it will. But, the, you know, it's always, there's a slight chance it could at some point start to grow again. Um, and then another another thing to add to that, at that point, I would need to think to myself, do I want to have surgery again to remove a bit of it again? And, you know, I would feel conflicted about that as well. I think you would, mate. But l- luckily, I never, hopefully I'll never need to, to, you know, cross that bridge. Hopefully. But we, remember we spoke that that big surgery that you had was that mental tick box. You've completed that tick box in your head. You realised that you could have been confident in everything that you are today before that surgery, but it was just a mental stigma that you had lingering in your brain. I think if it were yeah. to go back now, there is a great chance that you wouldn't you wouldn't get it. Just because I know I now know you as a human and I know what you stand for. So yeah. after after the, the the big surgery that you had, if you didn't feel like your identity identity was taken away from you, how did you feel after surgery? Um well, straight, I've described it to you before as like a honeymoon period. Um, you know, I, I came out of that operating theatre. It was almost as if I'd been reborn. Um, like if you imagine like a, a calf being born, you know, they, they come out of the womb and they're jumping about and they're all happy seeing the world and everything. That was like me coming out of the operating theatre, although I had less energy than that because I was out <laughs> the game on morphine. But... <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so after an initial sort of recovery period, there was a three or four month recovery period at home. And, you know, they, they basically cut away a big part of my face. And when it was first, uh, when I first came out of the operating theatre and I, I saw, saw it in the mirror and stuff, I didn't know how it was going to recover because it was so, you know, the trauma they'd done was, you know, it was a great deal of trauma they'd inflicted on my face, basically. Uh, so I didn't know how it was going to recover. And then over the next three to four months at home, um, it was changing every day, every day, every day. And then I could see it taking shape. And then when it got to like the, the end of the recovery period, I was like, wow, you know, this is, it's way more than what I'd imagined they would do with it. They've really far exceeded my expectations in terms of the work they've done with it. It's really amazing, you know, to look at it before and after. Um, and then, yeah, I was ecstatic. It was like a honeymoon period, as I say. Um, I was going out with no confidence issues. I was going down the street and not caring what people thought and stuff like that. But another thing was that there were certain quirks that I had when I was younger that I noticed took about probably about a year and a half post-surgery for me to get rid of. Um, because I was, even though I, I, my mindset had changed and my appearance had completely changed, I was still going down the street expecting people to stare at me, expecting people to look at me. Because if you think about it, for 22 years before that, that's what I was used to. And then suddenly, almost overnight, it wasn't happening, but I was still expecting it to happen because it, does that make sense? 100%. Um, 
I was expecting all these things to happen and they just weren't. And there's part of me that when it didn't happen, I was like, you know, that I was actually quite confused for a while, as ecstatic and as elated as I was. I was still, it was very overwhelming for me to, to have that change happen so quickly, um, to go from, you know, walking into a dentist room and immediately seeing two or three people in the waiting room staring at me, to then going in and they would still look, people still look, but now it's normally only like a glance and then they look away or they'll look for a couple of seconds and they'll look away. Uh, whereas before, there used to be people really fixated on staring at me and I hated it. And uh, after the big surgery, um, that's not really happened much since at all. But for a while, I was still expecting it to happen because it was what I was used to. Um, so that, that was actually pretty overwhelming. Uh, to to go through that change in a good way, overwhelming, uh, but it still it, it felt very unnatural at times because of what I was used to. I can imagine it is overwhelming, and like you said, you went from a transformation where people would stare at you and be fixated on it, to maybe just having a glance for a couple of seconds. But you do recognise that people still look at you, and one of the things that you yeah. told me were, no matter where you go in the world, whether it's this. Mm-hmm the Southern Hemisphere, whether it's China, whether it's America, you'll always stand out. And that's a recent conflict that you've had to manage in your brain. Have you thought about that any further? Uh, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't actually call it a conflict. Um, that, again, that would be like 17-year-old Rory's worst nightmare. But yeah, if you think about it, because of the way that I look, no matter what street, town, city, country, wherever I go on the planet, literally... Uh, I'm going to stand out a bit because I, I look a bit different to the norm and it's something that I accepted a long time ago I accepted that a few years ago and I, I've I've thought about it quite in depth in my own time um, but yeah that's it's just the way it is it's, it's a fact that's just something that I've had to deal with That, but again you know now going back to me doing a complete 180 I actually like that idea I like it <laughs> I like uh I like the idea that, you know, when I when I go into a nightclub or whatever, I, I, start, I do stand out. Um, but I think that I, I like that idea because even though I stand out, I'm not shying away from anyone. I'm walking into a room and showing that I'm a confident, outgoing person. It's not as if I'm walking into a room and cowering away in the corner like I used to. So they're seeing someone that's got a birthmark on their face that looks a bit different and they're like, wow, he's actually, he's owning it, as you say. No one can be better at being Rory Maguire than Rory Maguire. <laughs> Only you have the experiences that you've been through. Uh, so the fact that you stand out and have a message and story behind that in a nightclub, it's a, a great talking point as such as well. Yeah. Like me and all my mates fit in too nicely. I'm the same shade of shit as, as everyone else, mate. So uh, <laughs> I, I wish I had a, a unique story like you sometimes, mate. Uh, so we spoke about, we were speaking about nightclubs. I remember you told me this story where you're in the in the toilet and this gentleman came up to you, absolutely bladdered out his face and said to you, what happened to you? Were you in a fight? Uh, uh, how did you react to that? Uh, well, I mean, at, at the time, um, it wasn't that long after I'd had the surgery, so I was still, as I say, getting used to my new face, if you like, my new life almost. Um, and yeah, I was in the toilet and yeah, it was absolutely out of his face and uh, I had a good drink in there as well, to be fair. 
I can't remember the exact sentence in the way that he worded it, but it was something like, uh, you know, has someone someone battered you or do you fight? It was something, you know, something along those lines. And that's the, just to, to sort of cut away from that just for a moment in time. Since I've had the surgery done, it's actually unbelievable the amount of people that have said, uh, you know, instead of what what's wrong with your face, I've had quite a few people saying, uh, do you do boxing? Do you fight? You know, that sort of thing. A lot of people think this is a bruise from fighting. Uh, whereas, you know, the way it looked before, nobody really ever thought that. So that's an interesting sort of observation I've made over the past few years. But yeah, he asked me, you know, was I in a fight or whatever? And I said, no, it's, it's a birthmark. You know, I was born with it. Um, it's something I've always had. And uh, he was immediately, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean any offence. And, you know, I was like, no, calm down. You're all right. Like, it's fine. You can ask me whatever you want. But, you know, he, he immediately felt sympathy for me. And sympathy is the last thing that I want from anyone. I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me because I've got a great life and I'm happy and I'm confident. And, um, you know, I just want to help other people and inspire and motivate other people. I don't want people feeling sorry that I look this way because as I've said, I'm glad that I look this way. I know you don't like sympathy, mate. And the fact that this man insulted you, insulted you, quote unquote, and you didn't feel insulted. However, your mood was probably lowered because you had to spend an episode of your night consoling the individual when in, in a normal universe, they would be the one consoling you for insulting you. But the fact that you yeah. hate sympathy and this guy had been lowered in terms of mood because he insulted you. It's so yeah. strange that you, you had to console him opposed to the, the traditional other way around in that another, kind of situation. Yeah, definitely. And another confliction I had at the time, you know, this honeymoon period for like the sort of like a year after the, the big operation. Another confliction that I had was, how do I word this? I was very much in the frame of mind of, of, of I had this new life, I've got this new face, all the rest of it. I was really happy with how I looked. And then hardly anyone asked about it anymore. Obviously, they see that I look a bit different, but I've, since I've had the operation, I've, I've had minimal questions about it compared to what it used to be like. But the one thing that I did get conflicted with was when someone did ask me about it, for example, in that situation in the nightclub toilets that I'm talking about, when someone did ask about it, um, I did actually feel slightly down for, you know, like an hour or so after it because I would think to myself, uh, I've, you know, I've had all this done, I'm feeling great, but people are still noticing that I'm different. And uh, I think I was trying to... After the big surgery, I realised that I was trying to maybe stray too far away from my previous story. And, mm. You know, I was maybe thinking that no one's ever going to ask about this again and, you know, I'll be fine and all the rest of it. But the reality is that I had to accept the fact that even though it's, you know, a lot less drastic uh, in appearance than it used to be, people are still going to ask about it. And that's just something that I've had to accept. And I understand that. But at the time, uh, you know, I, I was so elated and high on life and experience and all the experiences of the world that I'd wanted for my whole life uh, that whenever someone did ask about it, it took me a little while to accept it. Uh, but now I've got no issue with it at all. Fantastic, mate. So we talk about these <clears throat> kind of fundamental experiences that you might have 
missed out on or wish that you could have. Speak about going out in nightclubs and stuff like that. I also want to touch on the, the dating scene. How do you right. find the dating scene? Have you ever experienced any prejudice in the scene? Not personally, no. Um, I'm a confident, outgoing guy now, and, and I don't have any any struggles or anything, you know, with my, my self-image and stuff like that. But when I was younger, I did. I used to get nervous. Um, I remember one of the first dates that I went on, uh, I think we were planning to meet up in Glasgow at about half past seven at night, and I got an earlier train up, and I went, uh, I think six o'clock, I went and sat in the pool hall underneath Central Station, and I, went, I sat and drank seven double Morgan and Cokes before I even <laughs> met the, the girl. <laughs> and uh, that was just, that was for Dutch courage, um, because I was still, I was still going through confidence issues at the time, and, uh, you know, I felt like I needed to have a drink to be able to actually have the confidence to go on the date, but that's a lot of years ago, and uh, I, I don't have any issues at all with my self-image now, and as you say, I own it, and I'm confident about it, so I, I don't need to go and uh, drink litres of rum before I do it anymore. But <laughs> Litres uh, of rum? Well, not quite <laughs> litres, but yeah, I had quite a lot to drink that night. And yeah, I mean, I, I was very chatty and all the rest of it, and it went well. But yeah, I don't I don't need to hammer the drink anymore the way that I used to, to, to build my confidence up. And that's another testament to how far I've come. I'm so proud of you, mate. And the thing is, like, you must be awesome on a first date. The story that you've got, it's just incredible. Uh, whereas I, I'm just going on first dates telling girls about my day and what I've had for lunch, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, well, I, I only another thing is I, I don't try and shove my story, you know, preach my story all the time. I, I'll only really open up about it if somebody wants to hear about it. Because um, I, 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 another thing is I don't like the feeling of me constantly, constantly telling my story to people and you know constantly preaching what I went through and all the rest of it. I'd rather only open up about it if someone asks me about it. But again, I'm happy to talk about it. But that's because you're more than Rory with the birthmark. That's why. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, were there any other fundamental experiences or traits or tasks or opportunities that you missed out on because of the way you felt in your teenage years? No, I think the, the big thing was really, obviously, family events, like sort of bigger family events, birthdays, stuff like that. Um, the big thing was the social side of it. You know, those five years where I was just staying in the house the whole time, they really affected me. But luckily, I've managed to get through it. And as I say, I've sort of made up for lost time, I suppose. And I think that I've... I mean, I, I'm actually still... I'm, I'm mature beyond my, my peers in many ways. But in many ways, I'm still like a little boy. There's, there's certain traits that I've got that are definitely as a result of the lack of socialising in my late teens. Um, I'm very naive in many ways, I realise that. And I'm an intelligent guy, but sometimes I just say things that are so zany that, you know, it's there's definitely... I can't actually pinpoint everything, but I know that there are definite parts of my personality which are a result of the trauma that I went through, if that makes sense. And those might be things that it'll take me a lot longer to mature in those certain ways or it might just be something that's with me for the rest of my life because I went through something traumatic at such an early age but I've accepted it and for the most part I'm fine with how I am. 
One of the key traits, though, that stand out for me is not just your humility, but your transparency. You're such a transparent human, which takes a huge amount of courage. And it's something that I've only done recently, too. What advice would you give to someone who feels perhaps, quote unquote, different and isn't talking and isn't being transparent? What advice would you give them? Well, the, it's, it's a bit difficult because I know that people deal with things in different ways. Um, I used to bottle everything up. My parents didn't know half of what was going on in my head. You know, they, they really didn't. I, I was a lot more down than I think I portrayed to them. And to my friends, they didn't know the full extent of what was going on. And I know that there are some people that can't bring themselves to talk about it. It took me many, many years to speak about it as openly as I did initially. Um, so I know that it can take time for a lot of people to do it. But I would say that if there is someone you can talk to about it, whether, whether it's a stranger online or a psychiatrist or a parent or a friend, if you do feel the need to get something off your chest, then give it a go. Um, I mean, when I when I decided to put that Facebook post up, I was very nervous, and I actually think I delayed putting it up for about two weeks. I think I wrote it about two weeks before I actually had the courage to put it on because I thought I'm saying a lot of stuff here that I've never told anyone, and this is this is like the furthest thing from the way I've been behaving. You know, I've been bottling everything up. I've not been telling anyone anything, and now I'm just going to put it all out there. It, it took me a couple of weeks to even put the post on. Um, but when I did, what I can say is, as the, the BBC, the social thing you spoke about earlier, the whole theme of that piece that I did was talking about my experiences changed my life. And it absolutely did. And the way that I've grown since I've started opening up about stuff is you know, far beyond any comprehension that I had when I was younger. And I do believe that if you are bottling things up, even if you don't want to, I personally think talking about things helps a lot. And uh, I have become very open and transparent because I also feel like the more I talk about my story, not only does it keep it fresh in my mind, it's also cathartic for me. Um, and, you know, if I, if I wasn't to talk about it for years now, that would bother me because I, I like sort of refreshing my memory of things and I like topping up on my story, if you like. Because um, sometimes I do sit in the house and get emotional and reflect on certain events that happened when I was younger and maybe feel a bit down about things that I missed out on when I was younger. But then I just have to pick myself back up and say, no, look where you've come, you know. And uh, all that started because of me deciding to talk. I uh, really love that, mate. It so hammers home the theme of today of, of the Mental Health Calendar event, Time to Talk. Thank you. Thank you incredibly for that, mate. And it's also so brave that you delayed posting that Facebook post for two weeks. The Facebook post that was just your story, yourself. Yeah. Like what, it's crazy that you had to be categorised as brave or you felt like you were brave just to be you. Yeah. And to, to be transparent like that's huge like I, I can be me like the taste of my own mouth I don't need to feel brave to do that but it just shows you the transition that you've been on that that was a brave step whereas yeah. now everyone just posts themselves online without even having to think of that and now you feel comfortable and confident enough to just be yourself and echo your story mate so um, I hope you're proud of that I really do thank you, <laughs> thank you. I'm, glad that, I'm glad that that shows 
it shows a lot, mate. So you overcame adversity, which seemed in the form of Mount Everest for you, being able to tell your story. What else do you want to achieve, mate? Uh, well, you know, this is a this is a very big ambition, but I'm confident that, you know, I, I want to be one of the people in the world that sparks a change for prejudice becoming a thing of the past. Now, I don't think prejudice is ever going to be fully eradicated, uh, but I do believe it starts from parents teaching their kids from a young age not to show any prejudice or be disrespectful towards people that look different or people that are from any sort of different walk of life. I do believe that I believe that people aren't born prejudiced, you know. It's a trait that's taught. I don't think it's a trait you're born with. And 100%. if you teach your children not to be wary of, of people that look different to yourself or, or not to treat them any differently, then, you know, they're going to grow up having those values that they're not going to put anyone through that sort of nonsense that I went through and that a lot of people go through still on a daily basis. And I want to, I want to be one of the people that keeps telling their story, uh, keeps trying to do as many things as possible to show that pre uh, prejudice is a, a bad thing to put anyone through. And I'm confident that I can be one of the people that really makes his mark and, and helps to change the planet for the better. I'm confident too. So what's coming up this year for Rory? Um, so there's actually a, a sculpture that got started last February. I was going down to London every two weeks for a, a, a sculptor called Marcus Cornish. He's a really well-known sculptor. He's sculpted quite a few well-known pieces in London, like Paddington Bear and Paddington Station. He sculpted that. Um, and there's a couple other really well-known ones in London. He's doing a sculpture of my sort of my head and shoulders, and he's doing a sculpture of another Changing Faces campaigner, Ella. Um, he's doing a sculpture of her. So we were going down every couple of weeks to London last week for him to start it. Then the lockdown happened. Um, so I've had a few Zoom sessions with him. So he's been doing a few Zoom sessions. And I think he's working on the sculpture at home now. Um, so I'm looking forward. I mean, hopefully I'll be able to get down to London at some point this year to, to be presented with it or what have you. Um, I think that's going to be displayed at a some sort of event at one of the, like the National Gallery or something like that. Um, oh. So that's something that I've got coming up. Um, I've got a friend, Connor Bell. Uh, him and I are talking about starting a podcast and being one of your competition. Good luck, We'll need it. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've been talking recently about, we'd both like to do it and we're both pals and we think we'd be good co-hosts I suppose so I think you will. We're, we're talking about maybe doing that when when we can get up to the Glasgow and rent a studio space or whatever hopefully later this year um, and then you don't need well, any of that mate oh well yeah no, I can see what you're working with but I, you know we, we're, we're thinking yeah we could do it either way but that's we're thinking about doing something in some capacity of a podcast so we'll oh. see what happens with that and then oh, uh, yeah, Changing Faces that I do a lot of stuff with and a charity called Humanity that I'm also an ambassador of. Uh, they've always got stuff going on, so I'm sure that when restrictions are eased and stuff like that, uh, we can crack on with some more campaigns, so I'm looking forward to that. Me too, mate. Where can the people join you and your advocacy and your journey? Um, so you can just look me up on social media, Rory Maguire. Um, 
Instagram and Twitter. I use Instagram the most, but I've got a Twitter as well. My my ID is uh, VM uh, Rory1993. It stands for Venus Malformation. My birthmark, VM, and then Rory1993. And, I'll make sure uh, yeah. to put them in the show notes below, mate. So th- thanks for coming on and sparing your time today and inspiring not just me, but the listeners. Thanks even thanks more for so for me. being... Oh, mate, it's a pleasure. Like, you're a paragon of a case study that exemplifies the importance of time to talk. You've changed lives, and you're going to go on and change even more. You're going to hit that North Star. Congrat- I'm going to say congratulations now for doing that, because I know it's going to happen. But, <laughs> mate, just thank you for coming on. Uh, it's been so emotional. It's been so important. The, the listeners are undoubtedly going to be taking a new, fresh perspective from your story, mate. Honestly, it's been an emotional roller coaster. Thank you. I'm so grateful. Thanks, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Speak to you, mate.